Welcome to True Health Live. We explore and acknowledge basic truths in public health. If you're a student or a public health professional or just plain curious about public health in general, then this is the place for you. Join us. Greetings, it is Deidre, and I am joined by my co-host. Welcome to the first live broadcast of True Health Live. I am joined by my co-host, Anishka Gokulau, for Stephanie. Um, we're down one, but we have a special guest with us today, Natasha Phelps from the Public Health Law Center. And today our conversation is going to be around menthol. So um, I'm going to pause and have my co-host introduce themselves again, even though you've gotten to know us over the podcast, which we'll still be doing. Um, so this will be uploaded as a podcast, um, but today we're going to have it live. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Natasha and Precious and then have Nat- um, Precious and then Anushka um, introduce themselves. Well, hello. Um, thank you for having me on. My name is Natasha Phelps. I'm a lead senior staff attorney at the Public Health Law Center, which for those of you who don't know, is a nonprofit legal center uh, that works on public health policy and mainly commercial tobacco, healthy eating, active living type policy. Um, and so I do a lot of our work nationally. I also lead a team of attorneys who work on policy specific to Minnesota. Um, and then I lead our race and health equity work. And that means uh, mainly our work on racism as a public health emergency uh, work that we do. So I'm really happy to be on. Thank you for having me. Hi, good morning. So I am Precious Stepney, a healthcare executive, um, particularly uh, focused on the area of mental health or behavioral health. And um, yeah, it's nice to be here again. (laughs) Good morning, everyone. My name is Anishka Gopilal. I'm a public health professional, as well as a mental health advocate. Um, I'm happy to meet you, Natasha, and so happy to be here to share our perspectives with you all. Thank you for joining us. It's so funny. I got like a weird, like distorted output with sound, but we're going to keep it moving. So like I said, we are talking about menthol. Um, And so for those of you who don't know, in the tobacco world, menthol has become a point of contention. So I'll give you a little background and then we'll just dive right into it. So um, for the last, I would say 11 years, public health advocates have been, you know, kind of banging their cups against the rails, you know, trying to get a lot of policymakers to understand the dangers of menthol. Big tobacco since the 1960s has been, you know, very sinisterly targeting uh, communities, specifically communities of color, and more specifically diving deep Black communities or African-American communities. Um, And if you'll know that um, when it comes to menthol cigarettes, out of smokers, Black people who smoke, over 80% of them use menthol cigarettes. This is not by accident. This is, as I said, because of this is a result of 
years and years of very targeted and pervasive marketing in Black neighborhoods when it comes to sponsorships of entertainment, um, uh, entertainers, sponsorships to you know historically Black civic uh, organizations, educational organizations, community-based organizations. Um, they have run the gamut with throwing their money around that comes out of their deep pockets. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of these organizations and advocates alike don't necessarily have the same type of funds to fight it. So what do we have? We have evidence-based information and education that we try to make sure that we're sharing so that everybody knows, you know, what's happening on this front. Because a lot of what we're hearing now um, with the rhetoric is that any pol uh, policy that is developed on menthol, which we know is not true because many municipalities or cities across the United States have developed um, and passed legislation regarding menthol. But what we're hearing largely is, oh, there will be unintended consequences. And this is rhetoric directly from the tobacco industry. And they spread it to, you know, different well-respected organizations, both um, just community-based, um, whether it be um, like organizations that are for a lot of people or just specifically focused on the African-American community. So these are the things that we are, um, and I say we as advocates um, in the tobacco control world are dealing with. And um, so we're bringing this information to you because True Health Live is about um, disseminating information so that you can have, um, you can make informed decisions about your health. And, you know, whether or not you smoke is definitely a decision about health. Of course, the goal is to bring um, smoking rate to zero so that we have less and less people smoking. At the same time, we want to make sure that we're pointing out that a lot of the behaviors um, and actions taken by the tobacco industry are um, a social justice issue, um, which it does um, relate to health. So that's why we're bringing this um, this issue up today. So I'm gonna open it up, open up the floor um, for you, Natasha, as our legal expert on the panel to give us um, some information and your take, you know, to explain to the people, um, you know, what's happening, like further what's happening with, with, with regards to legislation um, and the social justice issue of menthol. Yeah, well, <laughs> You know, I think you you gave a really good context for why we why we are where we are today, and I think um, when it comes to legally what what has happened with menthol, it is a really a reflection of the oppression, the political oppression in our country in general, um, and I think that's true about tobacco. You can look at tobacco as a public health issue and really see a reflection of what's wrong with the systems that we have in this country in general. And so that's why I think that it's so important when we do commercial tobacco work that we use an equity lens, because like you said, menthol is a justice issue. So let's talk about flavored cigarettes in general. Flavored cigarettes used to be grape flavored. They used to be cherry flavored. They used to be clove flavored. We used to have, the way we have flavored cigars now is how we used to have flavored cigarettes. And this was also during a time when the tobacco industry was able to have cartoon advertisements for children on Sunday morning cartoons, um, you know, penguins smoking while they're ice skating in the Antarctic. Like they just were really, you know, targeting children so blatantly. And then but at the same time, um, people weren't fully aware of the health impacts of cigarettes at that time. Once people started to become aware because 
the scientists were catching up to what the tobacco industry already knew, which was that their products are addictive and that they're deadly. Um, people started to change the, the general mindset of the American public started to change towards cigarettes, not in a way where they said, let's, 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 you know, put them out of business, but in a way that was like smoking is, is not like, it's not classy. It's not this, it's not that, you know, the attitude started shifting. So once that happened and then the science kept developing, people started to become concerned about children. Um, and so as the years went on, uh, organizations, public health organizations, you know, other organizations were started to, um, you know, uh, work on prohibiting the sale of flavored tobacco products. And the purpose behind that is to protect children. That's, that's always the messaging, protect children, protect children. Well, what has always been true is that menthol cigarettes are the cigarette that black children are smoking. And so from the very beginning, once we started to see like this might be a product that we want want, want to get rid of, who was put who was who was put on the side? The same people who are normally put to the side are used as a bargaining chip. Black health is just used as a bargaining chip once again when we're having these conversations. But it's also because the tobacco industry really made sure that menthol was something that was thought of as different than other flavors. So um, legally, you started to see jurisdictions across the country, starting with Providence, Rhode Island and New York City, passing legisl- or, uh, like local ordinances that would prohibit the sale of flavored products, flavored tobacco products but they would always exempt menthol cigarettes. And, you know, menthol cigarettes are the tobacco industry's bread and butter. Um, they need it. They need it. It's, you know, of all the flavors, it's the quickest to get you hooked and the hardest to quit and all of these things. It's a huge moneymaker for the industry. Um, so New York City, Providence, a couple other jurisdictions, they started to uh, prohibit the sale of flavors, exempting menthol cigarettes. And, you know, that type of momentum picked up over time where now I feel like people are finally look, like being explicitly clear about menthol being uh, an equity issue and being an issue that actually also affects all children and all people who smoke. But now they're starting to pass more comprehensive flavor bans, banning the sale of all flavored tobacco products especially, not even just including, but especially menthol cigarettes. And so um, they started to do this in response to the fact that in the Tobacco Control Act of 2009, um, Congress responded to all of the, um, you know, the uproar about uh, young kids, um, you know, smoking these flavored products. And remember, e-cigarettes weren't really even around at that time. So this was even before that. Um and so, uh, you know, the for the federal government to pass the Tobacco Control Act of 2009 and exempt menthol, it made it really easy for these communities to also start off doing that. And then, you know, all the public health advocates that were working on it that were okay with doing that are like, we can come back and add menthol later, which never really happens. I mean, it's it's it has happened, but it years from when it first passed, and if that if that happens. But, anyways, the point is. Since the Tobacco Control Act passed and exempted menthol for, through today, um, there has been a lot of conversation about menthol as a um, as a racial justice issue. And when COVID hit, and we started to see the health disparities 
in general, just on full display. And then we can pair that. And then we saw a link between COVID-19 severity and death and, and, you know, all these other health disparities with smoking. Um, I think it was really putting the pressure on the FDA to do something that was so, that they so obviously had the authority to do, which was to add menthol to the list of existing characterizing flavors. Like I said, cherry, grape, whatever, um, and all that were already prohibited in um, cigarettes. So the FDA's move was really just to say, we plan to figure out how we can, and then we will add menthol to the list of characterizing flavors in cigarettes. And so they're just doing what they've had the authority to do for 10 years and what or over 10 years and what Congress should have done when they passed the Tobacco Control Act. But People look at this different because like menthol is different because the tobacco industry made it that way. And that's how they take away political power from communities. That's how they culturally influence is that they place this doubt very early on and then they work on that narrative. And that has shifted along with how society has responded to the inequities um, that we're facing in this country. So sorry, I just talked for a long time, but there's so much to say about it. Yeah. And, and so like, we're kind of like, we're right back where we started. So like, as you mentioned, like in 2009, the FDA was given authority over um, tobacco. And when they left out the menthol, now it's like, all right, now they're saying, okay, we're going to address it again. So I like me personally, I'm like, I'm not going to hold my breath. So, you know, there's an, there's like an important piece that has to be kind of shared with communities and people is that we can't wait for the feds to do whatever they're going to do because we see their track record, right? There's a track right. record and there's a So it's, we have to continue the, commu- the education at the community level so that people are starting to call for, you know, some meaningful action to be taken within their communities. Um, even if like, you know, it takes a minute for the government to do something or, you know, whether, whatever level it is, municipal, um, county, state, or feds, um, I really think that education is key because, you know, when you do know more, what is it, the more you know, it's like, you know, when you know better, you do better. So, you know, for me, like, even though a lot of what I do is really trying to influence um, and educate policymakers, um, a, a big part of it is educating the community so that they know better and do better. So, yeah, what do you guys think? Ladies, excuse me, ladies. <laughs> So the education piece is, I think, always paramount. Um, when I think about mental health care and uh, the psychiatric hospitals, even in, up until the early 90s, had smoke rooms as a standard, um, use cigarettes, particularly in the 70s and 80s, as a means by which to um, motivate. It was it was a motivational currency to offer uh, menthol cigarettes. Um, in order to, you know, ensure you take your medication, um, ensure you're participating in therapy. Um, this was a tool used. And when you think about um, the impact of menthol cigarettes or cigarettes in general and mental health care and mental health, um, there, there's a direct correlation, particularly with depression and schizophrenia, which when we look at it statistically, um, is normally uh, 
most of the folks that are diagnosed are the great, the greater proportion are African-American. And so they're yet again, it's like, you know, the target is smoking these particular cigarettes and um, mental health care and, you know, that that relationship. So I think while there has been, uh, of course, in New York State and across the country, a ban on, you know, smoking cessation on mental health campuses and, of course, in buildings, um, the focus on menthol, the discussion still isn't at that level. You know, there still isn't a specific concern around it. And so I think these discussions and education is really, really important. It makes it more so important. I agree. Um, And I just want to focus a little bit on our youth um, because 90%, not only, you know, the larger percent is African-American and Black uh, communities, but 90% start off before the age of 21, right? Um, And let's just think about that. In our communities, education has to be key, but not just general education, but let the education start at home because we are our children's greatest influences, right? So if I have, if I'm, say, 12, and I have a 16-year-old cousin who smokes, um, I may not be able to go to the corner bodega and get that, you know, the menthol, but my cousin, my older cousins can, or they have more access to it. And so knowing better means we do better, but we would like to think that. But even so, it's more, yes, I know better, but how can I um, do better? How how does a family family play into this educational piece? How do we educate our kids and show them the differences and what the pros and the cons, well, in this case, all cons are, um, because it's considered to be safe smoking when it's really, it's not, right? Um, So I think talking more to our youth, showing them the facts and really being very transparent and honest with them um, and not fluffing anything um, so that they really get it. Because in this day and age that we are in, there's no room for fluff. There's no room to like beat around the bush with them because it's at an all time high and we're losing our kids in more ways than one. Um, but this can be prevented, right? Through guidance, through talking through things, having open discussions. Um, it can't just be left, you know, we can make policies from now to kingdom come, they can be implemented, but if they're not implemented in the home where it all starts, when it comes to our kids, um, how can it be followed through, right? How can we expect them to change the narrative and change behavior? I think that's a really good point. And then it's also though, like, and then on the other hand, not, this is not a disagreeing with you whatsoever. It's just saying on the other hand, like what you just described is so important given where, like what we live in, you have to have these conversations with your children. Sometimes, obviously, it's it's completely unfair, the amount of types of conversations some people, some populations have to have with their children. And so my thing about the FDA in the regulation um, is that's what the government should be doing to protect its citizens, because you shouldn't have to have, this shouldn't have to be a separate conversation, just yet another conversation you need to have with your children about how 
basically the world that they live in is going to test them or try to harm them. And this is how you best avoid it. And it's just exhausting. Like these products, if they were, if menthol cigarettes were just created by someone and introduced to the market today, they would never be able to be sold because they they have no benefit. They're just harmful. They create addiction. Like all of these things, if it was introduced into the market, if it had never been a concept before, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but you know that they wouldn't be on the market. So the government has the responsibility to protect its citizens so it doesn't have to even make those difficult decisions or navigate that difficulty of life. And I think that's what we hear a lot of talk now with menthol on international human rights um, and about civil rights, um, how the government is, like people were saying, um, and actually there was a lawsuit that was brought by a, a Black-led t- a commercial tobacco control organization against the FDA um, for its failure to include menthol in their list of prohibited characterizing flavors, because it was saying that like, you have the obligation to um, protect uh, the public, like that you're by law required to do that. You are failing to protect, like it's so abundantly clear who's being affected by this and you, by you not taking action, that's you saying that you don't care to protect that sector of the population. And so that's why it's like, it doesn't have to be something, the less we have to navigate, the less hurdles we're putting up, especially in front of, of, of young people, I think the better, I think the, that's why the FDA's announcement was like, people were happy, but it was also like, yeah, that's what you should have done this entire time. So, um, yeah, I think, and, and now like, I, that's why I was saying, I agree with you because of where we're at, we have to do everything downstream, like in the home and upstream on a policy level. Yeah, I, I believe they go hand in hand. Um, and you're, you're absolutely right. We shouldn't have to have these conversations over and over and create new conversations because um, the government isn't doing, like they're not doing their part. Um, but in our reality, um, like for me, I'm a mother. So uh, if I have to take that uh, initial step or extra step, I'm going to do it and have nieces and nephews, like we're black and brown um, people. So knowing all the risks and knowing that we are left out of these policies and it's, you, you for me, it's more, I have to do this. It's not even, I have a choice. No, I have to do this. Um, but I totally agree. It goes hand in hand. And if it was done the right way in the beginning, it would have avoided all of this. Um, but here we are. Yeah, Natasha, I think your point is really, really a valid one. And when we look at um, what it takes for the rights of Black and brown people to be acknowledged, recognized, or validated, unfortunately, it has really always been starting at the grassroots level, right? It has, it, it's never kind of big government or, or pharma or, or the tobacco industry acknowledging the, the gross human rights violations, right? That their poor policies, um, how they affect us, um, but rather it's oftentimes coming from the bottom up because we're the ones impacted and it is an unfortunate truth um, but only once we ring those alarms and have those conversations um, does it appear to even begin to change. And that is the, the miscarriage of justice, if you will. Um, 
So I, I fully agree. And what when in listening to you and Anushka, what also comes to mind because I'm always looking from a mental health lens is when you said, you know, yet another conversation, yet another warning, yet another thing we have to sit and kind of prepare our children for. Um, I think of how stress impacts health, not just mental health, but the physical health. The more stressed you are, the more susceptible you are to infection and disease. Um, But then we're told, well, African-Americans are disproportionately impacted by diabetes and hypertension and, you know, all of these ailments. Yet you we don't consider or it isn't considered um, how the stress and pressure that we're placed under you know, contributes to those things, not just lifestyle and dietary choices, but really environmental. Um, And so, you know, I'm glad that we're having this discussion because it's, it's one of many that needs to be had. Yeah. Yeah. Two things I wanted to like jump in um, based on like what you were saying on this, well, all of you, like one thing that I, I, like when I'm out and about in the community and talking about menthol, I always like to make sure that I say, um, it's the great initiator, right? You know, when we're talking about menthol as a social justice issue, yes, we're highlighting the disproportionate rate at which Black people use this product or use this product that has this additive, this flavor, right? Um, at the same time, when we talk about the youth, like if, if, um, if you brought up, Anishka, this is the cigarette that gives that 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 misconception of safe smoking. It's kind of like how vaping it's like the, it was the vaping of its time, right? Where kids think that it's safer because, oh, it has less chemicals. Safer does not mean, is not, is not equal to safe. If there's no way it's equal to safe. So um, so there's this misconception because um, one thing we didn't talk about, like with the menthol, it's um, an anesthetic. It's from the mint plant. So you're, you're, when you are using this product and it has this um, flavor in it, this, um, it's uh, this added flavor, this, 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 um, um, mental, I forgot, mental, mental, it's mentholated, like a mentholated cooling sensation. Thank you. Um, and it, it numbs the harshness of the tobacco going down. I don't know why I couldn't remember that. I say this all the time. <laughs> it's just like, it just literally is like, nope, I'm leaving. <laughs> You're on your own. But it, we it, have a lot of words to remember in this word. Don't feel bad. Right. <laughs> misconception of safe smoking so when young person hears that or even a person who's just starting out because we know that there's a a a cohort of young people like you know that are 18 between 18 and 24 that also begin smoking around that age because they start they use like the, the social smoking when they're in college and things like that so for a person a young person and in new york state at least i'm not sure about other places but new york state the average age where young people start smoking is 13 years old. So if you're a 13 year old or someone who's just started and you see that there's this product that you can use that makes that makes it a little easier physically um, for you to endure, then you're going to use it because that's what's happening. The truth is, though, it doesn't make it any better for you physically um, on the inside parts. Like you may feel um, different, but what's happening is you're actually inhaling more because of that cooling sensation and menthol being an anesthetic, you're taking in more. And and some of the individuals who are part of that um, group that brought the lawsuit, they actually also did um, a literature review some years ago and found that 
there is actually um, a correlation between um, nicotine and melanin. So when we're talking about people of color, people who are melanin rich, you know, so the darker you are, the more um, likely you are to have the nicotine bind to your melanin receptors in your blood. Um, nicotine receptors. So um, this is a problem. <laughs> and, you know, when we talk about like science, it, it, I always think about like, I wonder if the tobacco scientists, you know, because they always have their own piece of literature and, um, and science that they try to, you know, shell out and say, oh, this is what we found, but it's always in favor of peddling a product that'll either kill you or make you sick. So it's like, I wonder if they knew this and found this out. And, you know, some of that was driving, like, you know, maybe we will never know, or maybe we'll get a, get access to more records and find out, you know, that they knew this the whole time. Um, and now that, but the, the truth is, it's out there. We do know that there is, um, you know, that um, melanin, uh, nicotine binds to melanin in our blood. And so when you're inhaling menthol, because remember, if you're taking it in more, you're taking on more. So then that makes it harder for you to even quit. So then what do we have? So that's why we have over 80% of people who are melanin rich using this product. And a lot of people will be like, oh, well, it's because my aunt, my aunt smoked, my mom smoked this, you know, and then we know that brand loyalty is a thing. So, you know, uh, oh yeah, uh, I watched somebody smoke this. And this is not to say that, you know, certain things aren't learned behaviors. Absolutely. Um, those things come into play. At the same time, we have to trace things back to the origin point. Let's trace it back to when they were rolling through the streets in their vans, handing out free cartons and free packets of cigarettes, uh, knowingly addicting people. Um, and so it's not just, oh, my aunt or my mom or my dad smoked it. It's they're smoking it because someone smoked it. They're smoking it because someone smoked it. And that's and then they're all hooked throughout generations. You want to you know, everybody talks about generational curses. This is the generational curse. Generational curse. You have generations of people who are using this product, but it all stems from you know one point. And those those things that they used to do, a lot of them are still happening. They do still fund a lot of places. And you know we have to be honest. You know when it comes to talking about organizations that still um, accept money from tobacco companies, like yeah, we get it. Like it's like, well, if no one else is giving us the funds, where are we gonna get it? Because those institutions don't have the same endowments that their white counterparts do. Let's just be very clear and very honest about that. At the same time, so we have to do better about figuring out you know, how we raise money. And, I, and I, I'm a nonprofit, I understand, like it is difficult. Um, but we have to do better. And like, so maybe there's, you know, as we're doing education, have some of those discussions on how we make, how we um, help, you know, via education and knowledge, help places divest from, and I know that's a whole other, we're not ready to have that conversation here, but, you know, I want to acknowledge that that's, that is, you know, a very real, that's a reality. So, you know, we get it. Um, at the same time, I don't think that we need to offer up the health of a whole group of people for, you know, some dollars, because that's what it ends up being. Like, what is the worth of a Black life? And that is an ethical dilemma, right? So you're, you're mission-driven as a, as a viable nonprofit, um, yet you are stuck between keeping your doors open, right, or accepting the, this, this infusion of funding for the small cost of a banner, Right. But you don't understand the um, the price. Right. That advertising has on the impact that a small banner has. So perhaps it's about, you know, really being um, keen 
about how we have the conversation. Perhaps it's not just don't take this money because you may need it, Um, but it's about understanding the impact. You take the banner, but where do you place it? You accept the resources, but how do you consciously thwart this diabolical agenda? That may need to be the position that one takes as opposed to you know, that hard line between keeping your doors open and servicing your community um, versus, you know, not and and exposing your community um, to the advertising, you know, plans. So I think that it it, it requires lots of conversation. Um, but, you know, I think the to take or to not to take it, that hard line may not be where where folks are. Right. So we have to almost encourage them to to be as crafty as, you know, I'm looking at a quote from (laughs) R.J. Reynolds, tobacco company executive and says, well, we don't smoke this. Right. We just sell it. So it's kind of like they figured out a way to promote things like they know better. So how can we if we're not going to band together and create resources where holy, holy, we don't need to rely on those dollars. How can you utilize those dollars and turn it around to where it, it does have a meaningful impact on your community um, while not supporting the tobacco industry? I wonder if that's like, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe it's just like a, <laughs> a scheme <laughs> that I have no, I mean, I think so. I just wanted to say, add a little bit too to the quote that you just um, gave us, Precious, which is, you know, we don't smoke that, we just sell it. That in that same, I think maybe that same quote, um, the executive also said, we reserve that for the young, poor, black, and dumb. So this is a, you know, there aren't too many, I mean, depending, I mean, obviously, on your position. There are certain entities in this in this world that are just bad. Like there's there are just bad industries. And the tobacco industry is an example of that. They have they know what they're doing. This is not an accident, you know, like you said at the beginning of the podcast. So they know also they're and and so Deidre, when you're talking about the um melanin and the nicotine component. Um, and you said, well, I wonder if, how, if they know this, how, and if so, how long? What we saw decades ago, um, back in the 1990s, um, when all those states sued the major cigarette manufacturers, um, in that lawsuit, the discovery, the amount of documents that the industry had to produce because the court ordered them to, um, it was revealed that they had known for, you know, 20 plus years about some science about addiction and death and cancer and all of these things that their products cause that they just had. And they didn't show anyone or tell anyone what they did was they made their products more addictive. So like, this is an industry that sees that they're, they're producing something that can kill people very quickly, like compared to like, think, I mean, sure you could drink poison and you, and you could die automatically, but this is a product that you can get people addicted to and they will live, they will have a much shorter lifespan, but that lifespan will be full of an addiction that can make you so much money. I mean, this is just, they just saw this as a money-making opportunity. And so once they started to see 
they, you know, basically what I'm saying is the fact that they knew that before the scientific community knew that, before the government knew that, I am sure that they they probably have some and probably have done research on melanin and nicotine absorption. But I do think that they're more clever about hiding it and they're more clever about calling it something else. That's what they're, I mean, they, they're really good now. Even like if you go to Altria's website, all they have on there is their commitment to racial justice and uh, where we want to address um, inequity, racial inequity in this world. And it's like, are you kidding me? You are the cause of so much of this. Um, but they're, you know, so they're very smart and very good at what they do. And so they have for a long time seen systemic racism work in their favor because if BIPOC communities and other marginalized communities lack the resources to fight against them, um, either in court or with law, um, in politics, then they will always be able to do whatever they want. Like they've always seen that they're, they're very smart. And so it becomes a matter of them buying once they lost other credibility from the original lawsuit, when all those documents came out, if they knew that they had to buy what they lost because of that. And so they did, they started, um, and you know, they had always been putting out advertisements in, in, in black areas. And like you said, like, um, giving away free cigarettes, but not only just to black people in general, but also specifically going to like playgrounds in black communities and especially in the like housing projects in New York City, like just going and parking in front of but those areas specifically and intentionally going into barbershops to do research that they would create a memo called, you know, like Project Ghetto, which is where they went in and they examined the Bronx. I think it was the, I think it was an area in the Bronx and an area in Harlem. Um, so they could really get the black consumer. And so they like, they know what they're doing. And so then they started to buy black cultural influence, black political influence. So it went beyond just advertisements and sponsoring the Newport Jazz Festival and buying ads in, in, in you know, um, Essence Magazine, even though it's like, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about these um Things that maybe wouldn't exist or maybe they would exist, but they would be, um, you know, th- th- that are lacking resources to create what they want to create. Mm-hmm. But then now then now they're buying the political influence of, you know, civil rights leaders, um, politicians, all I mean, of that. But now they're taking money and they really now, especially now, given how much politicians need to to run uh, for an office they are really taking advantage of that. And so it is an acknowledgement that the tobacco industry has always seen systemic racism, the lack of resources, wealth wealth disparities, economic disparities, social environmental disparities. They've always seen that as a way to take advantage and gain more power. And so it's like so frustrating to hear that they're that they that they're influential because you know it's just a part of their strategic plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said something. I'm like, yep. Before we before we are done, we are gonna talk about the opposition, the current opposition. We don't have to name names. That's fine. But we're gonna talk about the current opposition and like just the the just downright wrongness. It's just a shame, like the way that you know they use their influence to confuse. 
people about what's really going on. And and even in that, then it makes me go into the concept of community. I'm going to like rewind it back to that concept of community. Because then we have to think about, because we always say like, you know, we're doing it for the community. Who is the community? Because you we have wolves in our midst. So who is the community that is actually, you know, who are the gatekeepers that are going to be doling out like uh, even handedness and justice and making sure that, you know, we are in safe and healthy spaces. So that is the real thing. And I think that's a that's a part that we as uh, as people who share, you know, phenotypes and complexion, those are real conversations that we have to have. Who is the community? Like, is is it is it your neighbor? Because I, I don't, I, I will be honest. I can't go to my neighbor who's melanated and ask for a cup of sugar. She's going to look at me like I'm crazy because we, we don't have that relationship. And in communities, you have relationships that are similar to that where you can go and talk to each other. Maybe you don't know, you know, your business down to like what color your underclothes are for the day. But you have that relationship where if something goes down and goes wrong, you know, we've seen what's happened in the year of confinement, something goes down that you can run to your neighbor and ask for help. So how many of us, you know, that, and that's just one example of community. So when we're talking about the community at large, you know, which I get, so we're going to use that word community at large, but then we really have to think, who is part of that community? Are they really for us? Because we have people in our midst using their influence and their power, like I said, to confuse people. And they are, you know, spreading the tobacco industry rhetoric about unintended consequences. They are using the death um, that was a result of policing. And we know that that is an issue in and of itself. And policing is a public health issue, which we've talked about before. But we know that, and, I, and I'll just say it, they're using the death of the unfortunate death of Eric Garner to, to bolster their argument about tobacco um, and menthol specifically. We know that the truth is Mr. Garner could have been selling CDs. He could have been selling water. And I think the, the truth is he was selling water the day before. It didn't matter. That was an issue of ego and, and ill training on behalf of NYPD and 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 that's and that's all it is. That's all it is. But using that as a way to say, oh, well, it's going to cause more interactions with the police. That's also very insulting. Are you saying that we don't understand the law? Melanin rich people don't understand the law. Is that what you're saying? And we know that there are, you know, people who disobey, who disobey the law. That's going to happen when you have any society that, you know, laws, and that's why we have laws. Laws are for the lawless. And there's always going to be people who want to break them. But for you to say that, we can't do this because more police are going to, but, but I'm at a loss for words. I'm just like, it's so like infuriating sometimes. And I'm just like, this is insane. And mostly what's infuriating is like I said, the wolves in the midst that are supposed to be, or seen as gatekeepers. And that's why I have to like, even personally, I'm like, they're not my gatekeeper. They don't speak for me. But the unfortunate thing is those who have power they, you know, decide to, you know, well, this is going to be the spokesperson for this group. And this, they don't speak for me, especially not when you are, you know, pandering something that does not work for my well-being or the culture that I follow. Sorry, I'm just not for it. Yeah, well, you know, really what we're talking about here is misinformation. And that has been a growing problem now for about a decade. And now we, we're seeing it more than ever when it comes to the election, when it comes to vaccines, we are seeing misinformation become 
and it's not legitimate, but it's becoming legitimized. Like my, my beliefs or my ignorance is just as measurable and important as your like facts and information that you have. Like they're, they're equating um, it's, it's depending on who it's the, the person who's saying it. So like some people are believing it misinformation because of what they're seeing on the internet, because of what they're hearing somebody talk about. And we are in the age of misinformation. There are now organizations that are dedicated to figuring out how misinformation spreads, how to stop it, how to help people get out if they're in a misinformation like rabbit hole. Um, like I think what we see with like QAnon, um, like that type of thing. Um, but it's becoming a major crisis. And, but the, but the big problem is it's harder and hard, like the, when you go on the internet, people are checking sources less, people are less trying to like figure things out. And so if, and so people are really depending on those that they follow for, uh, for, for whatever, to lead them down the direction of what is accurate, what is good for them, what's good for the community, blah, blah, blah. They're relying on people. And so if you have a prominent person who already has the trust of the community through their work, like through civil rights work, especially if you've been doing it since, you know, the 1960s, you know, that is already, that is built in trust for so much of of so many communities. And so the tobacco industry sees someone like that and is going to take that. And because they are very aware of how misinformation is spreading, they know that as long as they can get certain people or organizations to say something or not say something, like not to come out in favor of, like maybe they don't say, they don't push out the Eric Garner stuff, but they push out, they don't say anything when asked, you know, they don't show support. Like that's just as harmful. If, if you know that there's this misinformation, factual reality war going on. And so the industry just is starting to put that stuff out and they're using things that are, have always been a problem. You know, the, the murder of black people at the hands of police has, has been a problem for cent. I mean, it's been a problem since the police were enacted, you know, and so it's like, it's always been a, an emergency, but they are particularly aware of what's been on our screens, what's been in the news, what we've been talking about. Now we have people who never were really thinking about this issue. Now they're thinking about this issue. People are trying to do a lot of learning and unlearning. And so they're going to hear somebody who has this political and cultural buy-in through their experience and know that those type of people are just going to hear it and then just take it. And so, I, yeah. And so I think that that's what they really do to try to shift the narrative and they're very successful at it. But the fact of the matter is their arguments, I mean, we can talk in detail about some of the misinformation if you want, but you know, all of their arguments can be debunked, all of them. And they know it. they don't care. It doesn't matter to them whether it's true or not. It just matters whether it's going to shift the conversation enough so that there's not support for the FDA to be able to take methyl out of cigarettes for communities to pass flavor bands, like they just are going to do whatever they can do because they know that they're on their last leg on menthol, but they're going to put up a fight because this is so much money for them. Mm -hmm. 
we know like after the FDA made their announcement within like two weeks, like I think they had donated somewhere in the, the realm of like 16 million um, across across the board to uh, federal politicians just like, you know, get getting ready. And I was just like, this is so disgusting. And like to your point about like they know it makes it's like they, they are knowingly, which I guess like part of it is understanding like advertising and and knowing how to spin or swing your argument um and again not saying that this is what they should do but they they are very adept at pulling on the emotions and so then it makes you think like how do we have to be more regulating in our emotions and not be so quick to react to something so they're going to get the person as you said that built the trust and they'll say it they'll say something and they'll link it to something that 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 evokes like emotion and everybody just kind of jumps off the deep end you know and we have to stop that we have to sit and be a little more logical in our decision makings and deciding like which which bridge we're going to march on you know yeah i i definitely agree and i, I took a little note and what i wrote was pretty much the last thing you just said, Deidre. It's like research-driven decision-making. You know, when we, when Natasha was speaking about just the, the abundance of information, most of it inaccurate, you know, I, I just think of the fact that, you know, we're in the information age, but what we don't realize is that that doesn't mean that the information is accurate, right? Most of it is is grossly inaccurate and manipulated to kind of sway you one way or another. Um, unfortunately, the spokespeople, right? That that avenue has been longstanding. You know, you go back to the the age of the civil rights movement, and it was like, you know what? If a politician that was not melanated wanted to be sure that they would win their district, you show up to the Baptist church and you pander and you tell them what they want to hear. So why would you allow, right? Why would why would any pastor, why would any head, any any leader, any voice that makes the decision to be a voice of their people, for their people, open themselves up, right? Open themselves up in this way. Um, and that, but that's longstanding. So now I'm going to kind of move forward, right? Fast forward to where we are now. What do we do about it now? It is about educating our children, right? Because they think that everything exists on the internet. Um, someone spoke recently, uh, or I was involved in a conversation. It was like, you know, in my time, and I and I'm I'm only 44. In my time, uh, research meant going to the library, and you had to have you know encyclopedias in your home in order to get information, and those were updated yearly or quarterly, and that was how you remained adept on what was going on, and you read the newspaper every day. Um, now it's like I, in some ways, have pulled my children away from going online to research. Yeah, they know how to do that. But, you know, going to a book, I'll give a really silly example. I remember when my my daughter, who's now soon to be 11, uh, when I had, I had to teach her how to use the dictionary, I realized they didn't teach you this in school, right? Right? Like, number one, it's my it's my responsibility ultimately. But I just had this assumption that like, when I say, yeah, get your dictionary and look this word up, they don't even teach that. And she's now 10 and she chuckled the other day. She says, you know, 
my teacher had us look something up and I says, and what happened? She says, people didn't even know how to use the index at the top. They didn't know how to get through. Um, and she's like in like gifted classes. So I think that that's kind of telling, you know, just how important, just to go back to Anishka's point, how important it is for us to take control. Um, you know, Deidre, to your point, what is your community? What are we assuming is happening in our schools? What do we assume our children are being taught versus what they're actually being taught? Not just about smoking or, you know, and flavors. I mean, when we think about flavors, you know, Natasha, you open up by speaking about cherry and grape and, you know, all these different flavors. But the reality is cherry flavored anything doesn't taste like cherries and grape flavored anything doesn't taste like grape. So let's dial it all the way back to what are we feeding ourselves? What are we feeding our youth? Why would that taste, you know, be what they're attracted to beyond everything else that we're talking about? How can we begin with ownership at home? Um, Never mind community and spokespeople and advertising, you know, how do we manage? And and I like to kind of give some tangible walkaways. So that's kind of what I'm enumerating right now. But it's like, let's own what we can right now, which is the information as it comes into our home. What are we feeding our children mentally? Right. And of course, physically, what are you feeding your youth? Because we're all we're all in it, right? And we're doing it and we're speaking about it. But if we don't kind of give them that charge, then um, these industries continue to win. They have to be the ones to topple it as they've been doing, you know, as the 20 something year olds and 18 year olds have been doing. And we're grateful for that. We have to keep that going. Mm-hmm. I totally, totally agree. I think I love like that we're sharing all these perspectives and touching on these different points. Um, because it really, it really speaks volumes. And there's so many people that have like, you know, I I agree with all three of you in every single part. And it's, they all come together, right? Not from not just the family perspective, but also the the community at large, and then policy and so forth. Um, And as what Precious was saying, yes, we have to hone in on what what happens in the home. But back to what Natasha said earlier, it's another additional step. So our jobs as families, as, as parents and caregivers, um, it's now, it's like we have a whole nother level to take this to because now we have an extra two to three whatever steps because um, we can't leave it in the hands of the government and these big corporations because they don't have us in mind. They don't have our best interests in mind, especially our children because you know, the children are the future, right? So they're looking to dismantle our our black and brown futures. They're going to start with our kids, right? Um, And just thinking about community and the influencers in our community who hold such power and who are on the front lines that people see. um, And if they're the ones that are getting bought out and they're, you know, and and they're crossing over to the other side and for for like personal gain, but they have this large following. It's like, where do you go? Because people are lazy. Let's be, <laughs> they're not going into like the old fashioned way, like the way we used to do to do research. It's like, everything's on the internet. We don't know what's this, what's that. They're not checking facts, <laughs> right? They're, the resources, like, 
they're just like, oh, well, this one said it. It, it must be true, you know, because they've mm-hmm. been doing this, like, like you said, Natasha, for X amount of years and yada, yada, yada. Top but, Google search answer, just the top one. That's it. That's my answer. Right. <laughs> but what if the people, like, like the folks we're following or the, the ones that we think um, are most knowledgeable and the ones that we trust, trust is the big word, and um, that's what people are going off. What if those are the ones that are misleading us, right? We have to do our due diligence to be educated, to be well aware of what's going on in our communities and just our our society and out here in the world. Because if we don't hold ourselves accountable and we, we are not responsible, we are going to continue to be misled. And if we as adults are misled, then we are definitely misleading our kids, right? So it's like, we can't make it work if we don't do the work, right? So if the policies aren't being done and we have to work 10 times harder, but we're listening to the wrong people and getting miseducated and then not doing our due diligence in fact-checking and doing our own re- research, then we're really, you know, we're the ones that's going to suffer because our families are going to then suffer. So it's like, it's like an ongoing, you know, it's like a circle of life kind of way. But in this way, they're trying to take away that life. Um, so we have to really be, we have to be strategic and we have to hone in and we have to say, we're not going to allow this to happen and show up for those town hall meetings and show up at those public forums and let our voices be heard. And and in a way that it's like, I'm, I'm going to challenge this. I'm going to challenge what you're saying. I'm going to challenge what you're putting out there. Um, so when you are going to the playgrounds, why are you here? What are you doing? You know, step stepping up to that to the plate because if you're courageous enough to go park up in the neighborhood's um, playground where all these children's are, then I'm going to have that courage to step to you because you're not going to sit here and and try to take my kid away from me. Slowly but surely, you're going to kill them. You know. And so I think we have to be boisterous while speaking intelligently, while standing up for ourselves and our, our families and our, our communities, um, and really calling folks out when they need to be called out. And when we have the opportunity to amplify our voices and our concerns in a public forum where they're talking about policies, we should take that opportunity and do so because a closed mouth doesn't get fed. And the more we continue the conversation, the more we push for action um, and hold people accountable, I think it, it's a step into the right direction because as we know, it's not going to change overnight, but as, as long as we keep it moving and we continue to fight the good fight, um, at some point we're going to make change and, ch- and we see little changes. We want to see more of it, but, um, it, and, and in all reality it takes a toll, right? Like I was doing this, this, the podcast and having these conversations, conversations is a step in the right direction. It's bringing awareness, um, it's showing different perspectives and, and narratives, um, but we need to continue it, right? We have to continue it, and we have to have room and whole space for this this type of conversation, um, get feedback from others in our communities. Yeah, and not be afraid to call people out. It's like, right. what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? And it's hurtful, you know, especially if you're saying, oh, I'm here for the community. So it makes me think, well, I'm not part of that community because you're doing something that is like, you know, blatantly against, you know, what I stand for, especially when it comes to what healthy living means or healthy life or holistic, I should say. I want to acknowledge the chat. We have one of our viewers said, you know, it tastes like purple. Exactly. What does purple taste like? You know, you know, because I I agree. It's like, it tastes purple. What does purple taste like? You know, and if we have a taste for purple, 
then it, it, to your point, Fresh, it's like, what are we eating? What are we eating that we are so gung-ho to, like, you know, suck on a cancer stick, whether it's, you know, vaping or, you know, conventional, because we want to taste something that doesn't really taste like what it says it tastes like. That's insane. That's insanity, you know? Doing the thing over and over and expecting, like, a different result. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't taste like great. It doesn't taste like great. Yeah, it may taste purple, but like then that—that's the crazy part. Why are we eating purple? But you know what? You know what, Deidre? I no, no. I said purple crayons. <laughs> um, I was talking to one of my sorority sisters, and she was telling me about her experience with menthol. and because her parents smoked them as well, and it was like it was it was really sad because it was about that smell even though and i and i you know you can say this about cigars too you know flavored cigars you know cherry i used to smoke flavored cigars when i was young um and i'm so glad that i stopped but it was like you know it was an experience that was i don't know you know it doesn't taste like (laughs) anything it doesn't taste good i don't know you know it's this the power of the marketing, the power of the targeting is so subconscious and unconscious that it's just these things that you just, for some reason, are you don't know it, but it's just you're associating positive, um, positive ideas and concepts to these things that seem unreasonably unappealing and, and inorganic and all of these things. But um, I do, I did want to say about young people, though, they can see this type of marketing. They can see this type of industry, um, these big predator industries. I am so impressed by young people. Like I, you know, I've done some advocacy, local advocacy work here. And my favorite people to work with were high schoolers and, and, and college students because they are so passionate. Like they're all doing so many, like when I was in high school, I was playing sports and that was like (laughs) a full plate. They're like, yeah, I'm on this council and I'm on this, like, um, you know, neighborhood coalition. And I'm like, what? Like they are really involved. They are really impassioned. And one of the things that I think they're really impassioned about, obviously, is, you know, like civil rights, Black Lives Matter, et cetera. But then also when they're um, talking about the environment, because they see at all these systems, they see them falling apart in a way that is is that, that, that they're not OK with. Like they 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 believe that they should produce differently than they are. And they're seeing that maybe they can't. And so they're able to take in these major concepts that I think for at least for the older generations, we didn't really like we weren't necessarily starting off at that point. Some of us were, but like in general, not everyone. But this generation is really um, fueled by like injustice. And so when it comes to commercial tobacco, one of the things I'm excited about is like with menthol, it's like for them to fight the misinformation, for them to call out the industry paying folks and people selling out and blah, blah, blah. That's what Gen Z does. Um, And so I definitely see hope for us moving forward when they're um, armored with that knowledge. And especially when they start to see the the intersection between tobacco and the environment, Mm -hmm. because commercial tobacco uh, farming manufacture, use, and and waste all at all four cycles cause so much damage to the earth. 
And, you know, we don't even think about the fact that like um, plastic pollution in the water, cigarettes are in most places in the world, the number one plastic pollutant in waterways. And so um, the youth are really concerned about the environment. They're really thinking about these things. And so when they realize not only is like, you know, flavored tobacco killing people, getting people hooked um, for their whole lives. And then they have, you know, I mean, the, the, the type of damage it causes is just from like a micro level to a macro level in someone's life. They see that. And then they say, and on top of that, you're, you know, the, the plastic cartridges from Juul and the cigarettes and all this stuff is, is killing fish and it's affecting our, um, our food, uh, our food line. Like, Oh, you know, it's there. think there's, they're put, seeing how everything is linked together. And that's why this, that's why we're having these conversations about racism as a public health emergency, because I don't think we've ever been at a place where in general, a good number of people in this country can connect the dots between the social, economic and environmental factors of our life and our health. And COVID has really shown that in a way that I don't think people saw before, mm-hmm. some people didn't see before. And so now the youth, I feel like when stuff like this happens, the industry typically has been able to get away with it. If this continues and we keep educating the youth about how predatory the industry is from enslaving Africans to work on tobacco farms here and in the Caribbean to becoming this major industry that preys on poor people, preys on black people, preys on native communities, LGBTQ plus. I mean, this is an insidious industry. And so they're going to not survive in the Gen Z era if they don't try to rebrand, which is what they're trying to do. But I think that the youth can see through that. And so yeah. I completely agree. If we're educating them, da, 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 that's how we're going to get to where we want to get, where people aren't smoking. Because, you know, the thing, the, the, the hurdles and the like the, the pressure and the really the industry pushing you towards addiction, it, that threat is not there or it's very weak, at least. Mm-hmm. I, I so agree. I love that you brought up Gen Z because they're just a whole different type of breed. Like they, they, I think they be us, they're the millennials, like, because they, they question and challenge a lot and their perspectives are so different. So I totally, totally agree. And their, they, their, their eye for things, the way they look at things is so different. And it's very, very inspirational to see that. Cause when I sit back and I look at my daughter and we have certain conversations, I think I had said this to Deidre before, I'm just highly impressed because I didn't even know she was thinking that way or that yeah. she looked at things in that way. And so I was like, wow, these kids are, we may think they're not paying attention, but they really are. And not only are they paying attention, but they're, they're, they're creating their own perspectives and they're trying to figure things out. And like, no, that does not make sense. Just because you said it doesn't mean it makes sense. Like, no, they're going to challenge the status quo. Um, so I love that. I love seeing that their their minds are so invigorating and that they're, they're thinking outside the box and they're figuring things out and they're not afraid. And that's that's the most they're not afraid to ask the questions. They're not afraid to stand up and challenge you regardless and, and do it in a respectful way. And you know what I mean? Um, but also, aside from the Gen Z, do you guys remember back in the days? This is a, like a marketing thing. It was these little cigarette like gums that you could like pull and <laughs> do y'all remember that? Sorry. And 
And yeah. I was just thinking as we as Natasha was talking, I'm like, wow, that's how they got us. <laughs> right? You thought it was so cool. And then when it stopped, you started chewing the gum like, oh, and it lasted for like two seconds. The flavor wasn't even that. You know what I mean? And I'm like, look, look back, like thinking from back then to present day, how how their marketing has changed, you know. And even to now, I think if they brought it back, kids like they place so much on the innocence of children. You know, um, and especially like when they going when they're going into communities of color, because um, you think it's cool and whatnot, and they're just implanting these seeds. And then as you you know, you see how that trickles down and unfolds as 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 we grow. But um, I just had to point that out because it stood. I was like, what? I remember those things. <laughs> remember when we could smoke on the airplane? <laughs> yeah, and then now they ha- they had the little signs and whatnot. They would have a smoking section and a non-smoking section of an airplane. Like we can't imagine that now. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. When I when I do work with the youth, they they have no clue what I'm talking about. Like the restaurants. Like I remember where I was when um when the when it took effect. It was like midnight or something. And like the manager, I was in a restaurant. And they can put up cigarettes. Put up cigarettes. I mean, obviously, I'm sitting in the non-smoking section. But I remember them going out, you know, like you know, apologizing to the people. Like, but what? Just, I was in my mind like a person who's a non-smoker, and then just get nauseated by the smell of tobacco smoke. Because I don't know why we thought. Uh, 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 I don't know, like a recess section and the rest of the restaurant was going to keep the smoke. I don't know who who was thinking right. when they thought that that was going to keep. So as they were going, I was, oh, happy day. <laughs> it was not a problem for me. I was like excited that we didn't have to deal with that anymore because I grew up with um, mm-hmm. smokers in my family. And like when I had to be in those households, like you come home and you stink and like, you know, you get head. I used to get headaches all the time. Like, mm-hmm. it's like I can't. I can't handle it. And I'm not even one of those persons who is like, you know, always sick and da 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 But like one thing I could never take was the smell of like tobacco, like cigarettes. Mm-hmm. It just it just it never but I was also that child who has like that who knows about like, you know, going to the to the corner store for your grandfather to get his cigarettes. You know, like I have those I wanna, as well. I, I, I have those I think I was eight. My grandfather did that. Right. What was the motivation? We could buy candy with the change, you know? And our candy could be those little fake gum cigarettes. You know, you know what was Is the marketing and it just kind of like slips in there and you don't even, you don't even realize it because they, they, they but they did all this work with psychologists. Like they, they were very crafty as you pointed out before like you know with their tactics and things like that so it and even as you're talking about like even gen z and it's great that they are you know way more vocal and they catch things more than we did at the same time because there are these outside entities that are always working and they're very slick and very clever that's why we do still need to be that you know authoritative voice and create our communities and fortify them against these um outside sources because we realize we see number one there's wolves in our midst and we know that everybody every entity authority does not have our best um you know our our best in mind they don't care so we have to really be thinking about what a community is and like you know what cultures we're upholding you know as we are being bombarded by all these outside forces so yeah hot mess I think we um, we stay true to who we are as we're teaching, as we're educating, you know, 
um, and keeping in mind like change is going to happen and we as people change on a day-to-day basis on a second-to-second basis but as long as we our core values are still intact and we're moving from the same place I think that's a great foundation you know um, and the more we pour into our, our kids our, our youth um, they're they'll take that with them and implement it accordingly, regardless of what generation they are. Because even with the Gen Zs being who they are, um, those that foundation we, we've laid um, as family, as parents, they take that with them. So that's my little two cents. Yeah. Precious, you like you want to say something. Well, you know, bless us with some words before we head on out of here. Uh, we're going to close it down. It's so interesting. This is we have. The new I was one. having a little tech issue. My apologies. Yes. <laughs> that is the world. Yes, that's the world we live in. You button is our energy. <laughs> yes. 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 I, my my computer didn't want to let me come up with mute. Um. You said something and it just I wanted to just offer a little reminder about the importance of history. Um, our memory is so short, perhaps because our history is so traumatic, right? Our journey is so has been so traumatic that once we get a come up, we kind of want to forget because sometimes remembering is just so difficult. But I think that there is a lot of value in empowering our youth with the history. Why, you know, why were the movies, why did movies show us smoking? You know, talk about those things. Put, if you're going to watch movies and television, put it on pause and discuss really, really thoroughly, not just, you know, watching with a brain dead perspective, right? Where you're not really digesting and chewing and and processing, Um, but use, use, use the history whether it's, you know, the fact that, like when Natasha said, it started with, um, you know, with slaves being the ones that had to come and, and deal with tobacco, right? All the way till now, where um, those of us are that choose to smoke or that are impacted are still enslaved because you're, you're mentally enslaved to uh, something that, you know, is going, is killing you every time you use it. So, Dig into the history, acknowledge it, share it with your with your children, with your folks, so that we can we can spread the message. Um, I wanted to share something funny, uh, not cigarette related, just information related. So my children spent most of the year at home due to COVID, so they were virtual. Um, but the final quarter, they begged. They were like, "We really want to go to school." So I said, "Okay, it's springtime." Um, so I upped my, uh, essential oils and, and all of my home remedies. So every morning they were taking their, um, cod level, they were taking all sorts of things. But my son who's seven says to me the other day, you know, I'm mommy, I got my teachers and some of my classmates to begin taking, um, oregano oil and black seed oil because I told them how good it is for them. And like, you know how it can help your immune system. <laughs> And I says, really? (laughs) And it was just an example of how when we pour into them, they're going to share. 
and it'll have an impact. Um, and so we have to continue to do that and, and definitely roll in the history because if we forget, then they'll never know. And if they never know, then history will repeat itself. So that was what I wanted to share. And this is a wonderful discussion. I'm glad we're live now. <laughs> <laughs> right. We were said we're going to be live. We're going to be live too. So, you know, we'll have both. So we're live and we'll have our, you know, podcast audio. Um, so thank you so much, uh, Natasha, for joining us. Like, you're right. This was such a great discussion. Maybe we'll have a part two and we'll talk about some of those things because I did want to get to it, but I want to be mindful of time. Um, and we'll debunk some of those 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 claims that they make because I know what some of them are. It's like, oh, well, there's going to be a black market. That's that's the one that I can't stand the most. Like, the black market. That's the meat of it. That's the meat of it. <laughs> like, so now we're just going to have a bunch of people... Want these menthols? Hey, I got a little hair dry over here too. Check it out. Like, come on, come on, come on. That's not what's gonna happen. So, well, you know, we maybe have a part two at some point um, to talk about some of those things. You know, let's let's see what's happening in the zeitgeist of tobacco control as it pertains to menthol because there is a, a lot happening since April 29th. So let's see if some some folks keep their words. So let's see what happens and we'll we'll revisit this conversation at a later date. So for now, thank you everyone for joining. This is True Health Live. As always, if you want to hear um, uh, different topics to talk about or suggest, you can email us at truehealthlive at gmail.com or you can comment on the website at deidrasully.com on any of the blog posts or the podcast um, postings and let us know, um, you know, what you think, you know, add your opinion and I'll definitely do my best to get back to you and give some more information if needed. So without further ado, peace everyone and thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us here at True Health Live. Remember to like, save, share, and subscribe. Leave a comment and send an email if there's a topic if you want to discuss. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at True Health Live. You can also listen on DeidraSully.com. If there's a topic you'd like to discuss or hear, you can send an email to truehealthlive at gmail.com. See you next time.